Well, good morning, everyone. I want to start by saying happy birthday to Abby this morning. Everybody say happy birthday. And with that in mind, let's um, go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews eleven six. It says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And then skipping down to verse 13, speaking of Noah, Abraham, and Sarah, says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. And then one more verse, Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And what we're going to see today is that anyone that's ever been saved, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, has always been saved through faith and that Jesus Christ is the only name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for the opportunity to come before you this morning to gather together and celebrate our common salvation that you have provided to us. We thank you that we can worship you freely, in spirit and in truth. We ask that you teach us by your Holy Spirit, and we thank you for revealing to us by your Word and Spirit, the will of God for our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so we're studying chapter 7 in the Baptist Confession of Faith of God's Covenant, and we're continuing today in the last paragraph, paragraph 3. So just a quick review from paragraph 1. We studied about creation, the creator-creature distinction, We talked about the awful gulf that separates God and man, and we want to maintain a high view of God and a low view of man. In paragraph 2, well, actually in paragraph 1, we also talked about the fall, uh, federal headship, and original sin. And we talked about the fact that in Adam's fall, we sinned all. In paragraph 2, we talked about the covenant of works and covenant of grace. Covenant of works is do this. And you will live. And if you want to be right with God by keeping the law, it's very simple. Personal, entire, exact, perpetual obedience. And none of us has kept the law or is able to keep the law perfectly. So consequently, God made a covenant of grace, which was initially revealed to us in Genesis 3.15, which we called the Proto-Euangelion, the first gospel about the Redeemer, the skull-crushing seed of the woman. So now we come to paragraph 3, and let's read paragraph 3. This covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all to Adam and the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And it is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect. And it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality, 
man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in a state of innocency. So let's talk about the first gospel and farther steps. When we think about the question, what is the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15 often comes to mind. It says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that's a very good, succinct answer to the question, what is the gospel? Now, I mentioned before that I often like to reference Webster's 1828 Dictionary of American English to look up definitions because he has a very comprehensive definition and he often makes reference to Scripture. And so, in Webster's 1828, he defines gospel as being from uh, the root Latin evangelium, which means a good or joyful message. It's the history of the birth, life, actions, death, resurrection, ascension, and doctrines of Jesus Christ, or a revelation of the grace of God to fallen man through a mediator, including the character, actions, and doctrines of Christ, with the whole scheme of salvation as revealed by Christ and his apostles. This gospel is said to have been preached to Abraham by the promise, in thee shall all nations be blessed, Galatians 3.8. That's a very comprehensive definition. And he indicates, even indicates, that the gospel was preached back in the Old Testament. Our confession regarding God's covenant indicates that the covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all, to Adam, and the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps. And so we come back to that uh, first gospel, Genesis 3.15. God, speaking to the serpent, said, And I will put enmity, or hostility, between you and the woman, And between your seed, or offspring, and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. George Whitfield preached a sermon based on Genesis 3.15, titled The Seed of the Woman and the Seed of the Serpent, and he had this to say in his opening statement in this sermon. He said, On reading to you these words, I may address you in the language of the holy angels to the shepherds that were watching their flocks by night. Behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy, for this is the first promise that was made of a Savior to the apostate race of Adam. We generally look for Christ only in the New Testament, but Christianity in one sense is very near as old as the creation. It is wonderful to observe how gradually God revealed His Son to mankind. He began with the promise in the text, and this the elect lived upon till the time of Abraham. To him, God made further discoveries of his eternal counsel concerning man's redemption. Afterwards, at sundry times and in diverse manners, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets, till at length the Lord Jesus himself was manifested in the flesh and came and tabernacled among us. And I thought that was very well said by Whitfield and very very complimentary to what we read in in paragraph 3 of our confession. So, with Genesis 3.15, a promise was given regarding a Redeemer for humanity, and this was necessary because sin had entered into the world. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, we read in verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Skipping on down three verses to verse 8, it says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In the King James Version, it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so, Noah built an ark. 
His family was saved from the judgment of God upon the earth. And that brings us to the Noahic covenant. So when Noah and his family came out of the ark, in Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 to 22, it says that Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal, of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. And then it comes to a very key verse, in verse 22. He says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. And that's a very key verse in the realm of apologetics and presuppositional apologetics. Uh, at first glance, when you read the verse, you might the verbiage doesn't really seem that profound, but let me try to illustrate how profound it really is. Because what the verse tells us is that God has promised to uphold the universe <clears throat> in a consistent law-like manner. Now, you might remember from paragraph one, we talked about the difference between operational science versus origin science. Do you remember when we talked about that? And that sometimes uh, evolutionists will equivocate on the word science, and they'll say, don't you believe in science? And we'll say, yeah, we believe in science. We believe in operational science, which is uh, things like the laws of physics, the laws of chemistry, uh, repeatable experiment, things that we can observe in the laboratory. And we can do operational science because God has promised to uphold the universe in a consistent law-like manner. And so, for example, a company like Boeing can build an airplane and, and count on it being able to fly tomorrow, just like it flew today, just like it flew yesterday, because the laws of physics and aerodynamics and uh, propulsion and metallurgy and radio communication and navigation and, and all of those physical laws that govern the universe, uh, we can count on them being the same and consistent over the course of time. And so as Christians... We can justify our understanding of these things because in the Noahic Covenant, God promised that he will sustain the universe until his purpose of redemption for the universe is accomplished. Now let me point out another thing that's, that's very interesting, a little bit of an aside here, but hopefully interesting and practical. And let me preface this by saying, as Christians, we certainly believe in um, being good stewards of the resources that God has given us, and that includes the planet that we live on. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard the terms, any of these terms, global warming, uh, climate change, greenhouse gas emissions, carbon emissions, carbon credits, uh, carbon neutral, green energy? Have you ever heard these terms tossed around in the, in the national discourse? Well, these terms have some assumptions. They assume that if we don't stop using coal to power the electrical plants and petroleum products to heat our homes and to fuel our vehicles. And if we don't stop the cows from burping, and there's a lot of cows in Enumclaw last time I checked, then we're going to end up dying because the earth is going to deteriorate or disintegrate and we're all going to uh, burn up or melt from the heat and so forth. Uh, but there's an assumption that there is no God who is superintending the course of history. It's a very evolutionary, kind of naturalistic, atheistic there are some, uh, some of those assumptions built in. But remember what God said. He said, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And so he, he also said, we also know from other places, uh, that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. 
It says in your notes, God, it should say Christ. Uh, Colossians 1.17 says, Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is, by him all things consist. And as far as any kind of a cataclysmic global warming, the Bible does speak of a day of judgment, uh, the day of the Lord in Second Peter, where it talks about that the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But that will be at a, at a time uh, of, in the future of God's choosing when he's accomplished his purposes. But let me ask you this. Do you know where the coal and the natural gas and the oil that we use to fire electrical plants and provide heating for our homes and fuel for our vehicles, do you know where that came from? It came from the global flood. Because in order to produce fossil fuels, you have to have a massive amount of organic material, such as plants and animals, in a great upheaval, under high pressure, and under high heat. And that's exactly what happened during the flood. And there's a great DVD presentation that I've referenced in your notes there by Dr. Andrew Snelling, uh, and it's available on the AIG Answers in Genesis website. It's called The Recent Rapid Formation of Coal and Oil. And uh, one of the things that he points out in the presentation is that we can observe from the eruption of Mount St. Helens that these processes don't require millions of years. They don't require it. They're they're actually coal beds in the layers that were formed after Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980. And in fact, there's um, there's a thermal conversion processing plant in Carthage, Missouri, that on peak days makes 500 barrels of high-quality fuel oil from 270 tons of turkey guts and 10 tons of pig fat that it trucks in every day from nearby slaughterhouses. They grind all the stuff up and they put it under high pressure and high temperature and voila, out comes fuel oil. Now that's just bonus information. Uh, what you do with that is, is, is up, to, uh, up to you. Uh, I've linked an article in your notes where you can read more about uh, that process. But the point, the point of all this and how it relates to the Noahic Covenant is that the atheistic worldview says that we need to stop using things like fossil fuels so that we can preserve the earth. In the Noahic Covenant, God promised that he would preserve the earth and he used the worldwide flood to give us fossil fuels to use while he's preserving the earth for his redemptive purposes. Dr. Snelling observes in the presentation, in the video presentation that I linked there, he says, even in judgment, God was being merciful to provide us resources that we could use in the world after the flood. And Mitch Lush, in his uh, chapter 7 of God's Covenant, which is in this book right here, which is in available in our library, um, he says that in this covenant, God guarantees to man that he will preserve the earth as the framework for his redemptive purposes. And the sign that God has given us to remind us of his covenant to preserve the earth for his redemptive purposes is the rainbow. In Genesis chapter 9, uh, verses 8 through 17, it says that God spoke to Noah and to his son, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. 
I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now, just uh, a few verses prior in in verse 1 of chapter 9, God had blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Because, of course, because of the judgment, it was only his family left. So they had their work cut out for them. Um, And Sam Renahan comments on this, um, um, this new mandate, uh, it says that the Noahic covenant subserves the progress of God's promise of salvation and that its new commission of reproduction and expansion will be a means whereby the seed of Eve can be born. So we get to Genesis 12. Abram comes on the scene and that brings us to the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12 verse 3 God says, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. Not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. In Genesis 15, verse 18, uh, says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And, you know, God said that Abram's, you're going to have a people. Well, if you're a people, you need a land. And so God uh, promised them a land. And in Genesis 17, 7, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Sam Renahan, in his book, The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant and His Kingdom, Uh, summarizes comments on these verses. He says, Genesis 12 through 17 establishes a foundation for for redemptive history until the advent of Christ. The laws and promises of these chapters constitute Israel as a kingdom. The Abrahamic covenant created their identity and defined them. From among the children of Abraham, one of them will bring a blessing for all the families of the earth, for all the nations. So, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat Joseph, Joseph's brothers sold them into slavery. But this ended up protecting them from the famine in the land in those days. And you'll remember that when Joseph's brothers uh, came to Egypt to be reunited with him at the end uh, of of that time there, uh, their father Jacob had died and they were worried that Joseph would uh, take revenge on them for uh, selling him into slavery. But he said, guys, no worries. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. And indeed, he was uh, preserving the line through which the Messiah would come. And so Jacob, just a little bit prior, when Jacob was blessing his sons, he said this regarding to Judah, and this is uh, according to James Montgomery Boyce, the third of three great prophecies of of the Messiah found in Genesis. In Genesis 49.10, he said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. 
And we know from Revelation 5.5 that Jesus is spoken of as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And so we see here an intimation of the line through which the Messiah, the skull-crushing seed of the woman, would come. So then, although God had promised them a land, they took a little 400-year detour in the land of Egypt. God brought them out of Egypt at the appointed time. They crossed the Red Sea, and they ended up at the foot of Mount Sinai. And that brings us to the Mosaic Covenant. In the Mosaic Covenant, God provided a civil, ceremonial, and moral law to govern the people in the land that God had promised them. We read in Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 20, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, and to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you're entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you do not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Well, what happened? Israel ended up rejecting God as their king. They wanted an earthly king like the nations around them. God had, uh, the Lord said to Samuel regarding this, uh, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from the land of Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. And so uh, Samuel anointed Saul as king, but eventually David took the throne, and that brings us to the Davidic covenant. At the end of David's reign, God spoke to David regarding Solomon, his son, but he also uh, spoke beyond Solomon uh, prophetically regarding Christ. And in 2 Samuel 7, uh, verses 12 through 16, He says, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. That was Solomon. Solomon built the temple. And then it says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And that clearly goes beyond Solomon. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So clearly um, uh, indicating further down the line, and we know eventually that's speaking about the throne of Jesus Christ. In Psalm 89, verses 3 through 4, it says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. So God had promised Adam and Eve a seed who would be the Redeemer. God preserved Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the line of Jacob, and uh, Judah and David. And that brings us to the New Covenant. 
In Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his brother and each each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And that's repeated in Hebrews 8, verses 6 through 13. And of course, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And then Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised again the third day according to the Scriptures. So given all of this, these points that we've touched upon along the way, the co- our confession in chapter 7 states, the covenant is revealed in the gospel, first of all to Adam and the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by farther steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And so just in summary of kind of what we've touched on here, uh, Sam Waldron in this book, which we also have available in our library, said, The covenant with Noah is given as a framework in which creation will be preserved by common grace until the fulfillment of the promise. The covenant with Abraham formally initiates the community through which the promised Redeemer will come. The Mosaic covenant provides the necessary regulation and legislation for that community at the time when it has ceased to be a family and has become a nation. In so doing, God also provides a full revelation of the nature and necessity of the response owed to His covenant of grace. In the Davidic covenant, God's rule over His people is given concrete manifestation. In so doing, the line through which the Redeemer would come is specified. In the New Covenant, the Redeemer appears and accomplishes redemption, thus bringing to fruition all the types and predictions of the earlier covenants. And all of this, that is, the accomplishment of our redemption, is based upon the covenant of redemption. Paragraph 3 continues. It is founded in that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and Son about the redemption of the elect. And this is what we call the covenant of redemption. Now, you'll remember from the very first lesson that we did on uh, chapter 7, we mentioned several passages, Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, where it speaks about how, how God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He did this according to the good pleasure of His will. 2 Timothy 1, 9, according to His own purpose and grace before the world began. In Titus 1, 2, in hope of eternal life, which God cannot lie, promised before the world began. Uh, we mentioned 1 Peter 1.20, which spoke about Jesus, who was foreordained before the foundation of the world. And so uh, I wanted to also read um, in, the, in the Confession in chapter 17, paragraph 2, it's, the, it's, a, paragraph, it's a, a chapter on the perseverance of the saints, but it, uh, it complements this uh, idea about the covenant of redemption. The perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election 
flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ in union with Him, the oath of God, the abiding of His Spirit, and the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace from which, from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. So the covenant of redemption took place outside of eternity, in eternity past, and that the covenant of grace is that which was revealed to us in, in time as we know it. And so flip back over to the first page of your notes briefly. Uh, in paragraph 3, uh, after footnote 7, it continues by saying, it is, by, uh, it is alone by the grace of this covenant that all the posterity of fallen Adam that ever were saved did obtain life and blessed immortality, man being now utterly incapable of acceptance with God upon those terms on which Adam stood in a state of innocency. And you'll notice there, uh, under footnote 8, there's a number of passages, proof texts that are referenced there. We read uh, uh, several of these in the very beginning this morning. Um, I'll just add Romans 4.3. Uh, Romans 4.3, what does the Scripture say? That Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So turn back over to the back last page of your notes. And the point that we're making here is that uh, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, uh, everyone was always saved through faith. Um, chapter 8, paragraph 6 of the Confession complements what we've already read in chapter 7. It says that although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ until after His incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world being the same yesterday and today and forever. And so salvation is by grace through faith. Anyone that has ever been saved has been saved by faith. Those in the Old Testament in the time of the Old Covenant looked forward to the promised Redeemer and were saved by virtue of the New Covenant those saved in the New Testament in the time of the New Covenant and beyond, including us, were saved and are saved by looking back at what Christ our Redeemer accomplished for us on the cross, which is the New Covenant. So in conclusion, I read just a sentence from Mitch Lush, again from uh, chapter 7 of God's Covenant in an exposition, New Exposition of the London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689. He says... As you study the divine covenants, note that God has gone to great pains to make himself and his gospel of grace known to you. Be sure that you do not neglect this treasure of gospel grace. Rather, embrace the promised salvation by repentance and faith, and you will experience the blessings of God's covenant for all eternity. And then Sam Renahan, at the end of his book, The Mystery of Christ, His Covenant and His Kingdom, uh, comments, he says... As stated at the outset of this work, the study of the mystery of Christ, His covenant, and His kingdom is a devotional experience. It is a way of wonderment, a path of praise. It is a balm, a salve, a nepenthe, a panacea, a cordial, a precious remedy, a sweet medicine, a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. The mystery is free everlasting salvation in Christ, and it is for everyone.
So a question that we might ask in application of all of this, have you received him by faith? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for being the creator and sustainer of the universe. We thank you for working all things according to the counsel of your will and for revealing to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And we thank you for granting us repentance and faith so that we may receive eternal life. And if there are any here today who have not trusted in Christ, we pray that you would be pleased to give eyes to see and ears to hear the wonderful words of life and be saved. In your name we pray, amen.